0: Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of the Sports Map Podcast. My name's Nick Kane. This is the podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. And today we'll be chatting to Colin Griffin from the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin about his PhD on Achilles tendinopathy, but also his clinical experience in managing athletes with this condition. Now, for those who have not seen it yet, our brand new digital masterclass platform is now live and accessible. You can sign up for a free seven day trial, which will give you full access to the library of content that features the likes of Craig Purdom, Jill Cook, Ebony Rio, Dean Benton, Stu Eimer, John Menaguchia, Tim McGrath, and Steve Saunders. Certificates are available upon completion of every class for all your CPD or record keeping. And there's Lots of brand new content coming soon, including Peter Maliaris, Josh Heary and Mark Schools and Dave Hillard, just to name a few that will be coming in the future months. Uh, What we're trying to do is, I guess personally, I've always found the best way I've learnt is when I've been lucky enough to take an athlete or a patient to a particular expert in a field for a second opinion. Uh, And these masterclasses are designed to provide you with this type of access. Um, That along with the times that you may sit one-on-one in a room with an expert clinician from anywhere around the world, this is the type of content we're bringing to you. So it's practical and it's clinically relevant and it will cover a wide range of um, conditions and pathologies relevant to sports physio and sports rehabilitation we hope you enjoy uh, so please feel free to head over to sportsmap.com.au and register for a free seven-day trial with our new sports map masterclass now upcoming courses at the sports map the upper limb rehabilitation in sport which is held on the gold coast is now sold out only virtual access remains available and there's also very limited spots left for the athletic Groin Pain Symposium in Sydney, which is early November. Uh, Very limited spots, it's a highly practical event. It will sell sell out in the coming weeks. So if you are keen to get on board, head over to the site and make sure you jump on board uh, and keep a lookout for some fantastic new courses that are soon to be released coming in February with some very big names coming along. Now our guest today, Colin Griffin, He is a strength and conditioning coach at the Sports Surgery Clinic, and he's the head of the foot and ankle rehabilitation department He has over 15 years experience in high performance sport having represented ireland at the 2008 and 2012 olympic games in the 50 kilometer walk as well as a number of top 12 performances at the world and european level he's also coached other irish athletes at the olympic level Uh, colin is currently undertaking a phd on the biomechanics of the muscle tendon interaction of the achilles tendon during exercise working under the great JB, Morin, uh, some fantastic content to talk through. And a lot of it is really clinically relevant that uh, I hope a lot of our listeners can apply into their practice. Welcome Colin to the Map podcast. Yeah, thank
1: you, Nick. I'm um, delighted to be on your on your podcast um, among your, um, yeah, the, the previous, among, among the esteemed guests you've had previously, so. Um, yeah, yeah, good to, good, to, good to chat.
0: Beautiful. Now, pleasure is all ours. Uh, and um, I was actually just looking over some content that we did uh, some time ago, like in the early COVID lockdowns. You did a presentation for us or a webinar they were called then on uh, calf injuries. And that's had about seven thousand, six point nine thousand views now. So, it's been a popular one.
1: Yeah, look, that was, uh, I suppose, a bit of an unknown. Um, it was probably one of the first... Uh, a series of webinars um, and I suppose people, you know, with, with face-to-face conferences and, and, and courses, um, I suppose off limits as, as the medemics did. it in, um, I suppose there's a big pivot towards webinars and that, so that was when the first one and I was definitely overwhelmed with the response, um, you know, definitely got a good reaction and, um, you know, it made me sort of, uh, um, I wouldn't say up my game, but I suppose get my thoughts a bit clearer because a lot, a lot of, there was a lot of spin-off from that, a lot of people get in touch asking me questions about different things and... Um, you know, and then I suppose it, it uh, encouraged me to dig a little bit deeper into the area and, and, and learn a bit more as I we went along.
0: Yeah, nice. And I guess that's probably like one good thing about these type of things, podcasts and, and the videos, that it certainly does like extend your network where I'm, you know, it'll often always reach at least one person who'll be like, oh, geez, I need to speak to that person and, and get their views. How do you find that when people are reaching out to you and, and getting your advice on different uh, injuries?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it works what ways. I mean, you know, I've built up a good network of people and um, practitioners in the sport who've been very generous with their time to me and, and played a big role in my development and you know uh, I think it works both ways and if I have something to offer somebody else you know I'm more than happy to, to share it and um, I'm, I'm quite open about how I go about my work um, you know um, particularly uh, my, my, my exercise prescriptions my, my programming you know I'm quite open about it Um I'm not afraid to share it and put it out there because it's, it's it's my thoughts at that moment in time it's 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 subject to evolution like everything else as, as we learn a lot more about things and maybe learn, learn some, some lessons along
0: the way yeah lovely and um oh, i guess one of the questions was i was going to ask was a little bit around just to to fill the listeners in a bit on your background but um uh, at the moment we're watching the COM games and yourself uh performed in a couple of olympic games and I'm, I'm sure commonwealth games as well um tell us a little little bit about that
1: yeah no uh was intelligent for the Commonwealth Games, so that Ireland um, is not part of the Commonwealth. So, but Northern Ireland is. So, um, but no, it's it's. <laughs> I'm not going to get into the complicated history. And um, actually, my, my wife is from Northern Ireland. She was actually she works in marketing in PR, so she was actually team press officer for the Commonwealth Games in Delhi in 2010 and Glasgow in 2014. So I certainly have a vested interest, and I was watching it, and I would know a lot of the Northern Irish athletes who were competing, and they got two medals, which is really successful games for them. Um, but yeah, look, my own background, um, I grew up in, in, in an athletic family, but my parents were involved, my dad more as a coach and administrator and my mum as a runner. Um, she competed internationally, um, quite close to qualifying for Olympics in the Martin back in the late 80s and early 90s. So that was the environment I grew up in um, and I suppose it was just, it was just uh, without any parental pressure because uh, my parents, you know, my parents have experienced a lot of it themselves, um, you know. I definitely had a lot of support and encouragement, and some, and oftentimes it was the case of them kind of holding me back when I was keen to p- push on myself. So, um, yeah, like that was my 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 background growing up. Um, represented Ireland at all levels from underage up to junior and senior, and then com- competed in the 2008 and two thousand and twelve Olympic Games in the fifty k walk, um, and then retired, about nine, uh, formally retired about maybe almost nine years ago, um, at the end of twenty thirteen season. So. And then my career took a little bit of a a, a pivot as I said so um and uh I suppose a, a new chapter opened up and um yeah look haven't, haven't looked back since
0: and and that new chapter uh I believe involves marathon running but also obviously uh you your extensive work at uh the sports surgery clinic in in Dublin. tell us a, a bit about those two pursuits
1: yeah well, look obviously when to retired from any sport, I was still young like i'm I'm, I'm just turned 40 last week so um when I retired, I was 31, so I was still quite young, so I wanted to sort of keep fit. Um so um I began running a little bit more, um, took part in a few 10K races, half Martins, did a Martin in 2015, and um pretty much every year I do one or two Martins. And I've got quite competitive at club level, but look, that's you know, um to come a point where I'll be I'll be trying to <laughs> I'll be working hard to maintain what I have before I before start to started de- declined anyway. So um like I enjoy that because it gives me a feel for the sport. Um, I work a lot with runners, and when I experience things that they experience, I can relate to my patients better and empathise with them, and hopefully help them along their way. And, and and I suppose they hopefully have a little more faith in me because because I'm in, in, involved in, in the sport. Um, but yeah, I started working in the clinic in 2014. Um, you know, I suppose my my my. my career path was, I suppose, a little bit late starting that way. And um, so I, I, I suppose, cover a lot of ground in a short space of time. And certainly working in our department, and you, you've been there and I suppose you, you've seen how, how, I suppose, the multidisciplinary team nature of, of, of our environment. we have sports medicine doctors who also work at high level in elite sports. We have some top class physios, um S&C coaches, biomechanists. So when I worked, you know, I definitely got my eyes open when I started working in that environment, realised very quickly what I don't know. Um, and you know by surrounding with people with different expertise in different areas, um, it certainly broadened um, my knowledge base and skills. And um, over the first few years, um, I was kind of seeing a lot more lower limb running injuries and started to specialise a little bit more uh, in that area. And took quite an interest in calf and Achilles injuries because I've seen a lot of calf injuries and runners of different different types. Some like exertional calf pain syndromes and others like calf strain. Um seen a lot of Achilles tendinopathies, and took a lot of interest in the research in that area. Um, and I suppose over those few years, identified maybe little gaps that maybe I could try to fill with my own. Um, I always wanted to do a PhD, so um, identified areas that probably needed to be looked at a little bit more, and put a proposal together, and then began my PhD in 2017. So I'm coming towards the end of that. Um, and I suppose clinically, at the moment, I, I, I lead the foot and ankle rehabilitation stream, so um, so kind of manage a small team of, of, of clinicians. And I suppose we're always trying to evolve and, and, and further enhance our, our service delivery and fine tune our lab testing service as well. And, and, and make sure that we've got, I suppose, good relationships with our referring clinicians, so some of our orthopedic surgeons, our sports medicine doctors, and some of our external um referrers as well. So, um, so make sure that when patients are sent to us, that they get the best quality um treatment and, and and outcome you know um, uh, 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 as best we can
0: yeah lovely there there's no doubt uh you guys are leading the way in many facets on some of that management and and the structures and the um, staff and clinicians you have there is like first rate um you're doing your phd as you mentioned on it's on achilles do you want to tell us a little bit about that what are we looking at uh, and so far i guess uh, maybe a snapshot of what you're finding and then we will sort of Break that down into the different components as we talk through the rest of the podcast.
1: Yeah, so my overall um, PhD topic is Achilles tendon injury rehab and lower limb biomechanics. So um, I'm registered to University Cote d'Azur in France, um, and J- Professor JB Morin is my supervisor. And um, all my all my research work and data collection is done at the Sports Centre Clinic in Dublin. Um, so. Our main study, the the main RCT in in, in my um, PhD is as um, was testing our our own um, rehabilitation rehabilitation protocol for Achilles tendonopathy, chronic mid portion of Achilles tendonopathy. So we're looking at athletic population, people who do sports that involve running, um, who are age eighteen to forty five, who have symptoms more than three months, less than three years, no other lower limb injury, haven't had an injection in the last six months and we randomize them into um, one of two groups. Um, so the one group being our SSE protocol, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. The second, then the control group follows the um, Silbernego's uh, protocol, which is similar in nature in, in that it, it, it's, it's um, multifaceted. So, um, um, you know, you have a combination of concentric, eccentric exercises, progression to plyometrics. Uh, we're also trying to progress to running, um, but the progression guided more by pain, the program is probably less specific in terms of what sort of low targets to, 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 to hit in terms of um, calf strength and progression, more guided by pain. So look, it, it, it's a good program. People do get better with it. Um, our program is a little bit more targeted in terms of achieving certain calf strength measures um, and, and, and using that to prescribe the program and trying to progress based and, and, and hitting those targets as well as maybe within a tolerable level of pain. So we do allow some a, a level of pain um, that, that, that's tolerable. And once enough flaring up within the 24 to 48 hours afterwards, we're comfortable with that. And um, obviously there's room there to adjust if we need to. But it's more high intensity. So in, instead of like a daily program of exercises, this is done literally three days a week and um, well spread out. And we encourage them to maintain the running if they can, uh, if they're able to tolerate it and, and not be any worse. Um, we encourage them to keep the running going. We do give them a little bit of guidance on that. And we do a little bit of work in running mechanics as well because um, we assess calf strengths um, and we assess vertical and horizontal performance and we assess the running mechanics um, for both groups. Um, so we do that at, at, at baseline uh, week six and week 12. And then we also, then our, our, our primary measures measure is, is the visa A questionnaire. And then we do a six month and 12 month and two year follow-up um, where we look at... Um, uh, global perceived rating and change measures as well. So um so there's quite a lot to work to that RCT. Um it's probably the most comprehensive RCT done um to date on, on Achilles tendonopathy. So we're hoping to I suppose cover things that maybe others haven't covered before and, and contribute something valuable to, 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 to the research. Um, and i have a couple of secondary studies in that. So I'll just come back to the study we, we have the protocol paper published so um so that's already been been um peer reviewed and and, and um, pre-registered so um and that, I suppose, adds to the transparency of our work. And then a couple of secondary papers um, that we've been looking at is the reliability uh, of a single leg horizontal rebound test and looking at some of the biomechanical features of that um, because there's a lot done on horizontal hopping um, and maybe less so on, sorry, less done on the vertical hopping, but less so on horizontal hopping. So, um, you know, we just want to see what the differences are in that. And, and, and perhaps maybe that might be, um, give us a little bit more insight into the, into the readiness of the Achilles tendon and the calf complex um, to return someone back to sport, given the demands of, of a horizontal rebound compared to vertical. Um, and then looking at a, another small study on um, reliability of a seated calf isometric test. And then I also had the chance last year to work with uh, a player, who, a football player, who had an Achilles tendon rupture um, just at the start of their preseason. And took him through his nine months um rehabilitation pathway and collected data along the way so there's some valuable stuff there in terms of some of the biomechanical features or the biomechanical changes over the nine months um and also just detailing the program how we progressed it so um, we're hoping to get that published as, as, a, as a single case report
0: right lovely that's a extensive amount of work and um yeah certainly the protocol on the the criteria-based rehab protocol it's available um online in your paper so obviously recommend people go and have a really good look at that and a good read of that um it's some fantastic work and we might break down some of those things that you've sort of talked through i guess to give you a quick snapshot for the listeners we'll talk around some of the strength and um strength uh, norms but also set for testing and we'll talk through a couple of those hop testing as well as our gait analysis uh, mate starting with calf strength i know in the paper um you did an isokinetic testing. So let's touch on that um, and, and around maybe your norms and what you're looking at. Um, but then also let's, from there, we'll extend into just chatting around that seated calf raise strength testing or, and, and we'll talk about, I guess, the fact that you're doing a study on that, um, the reliability and technique of, of that test itself.
1: Yes. Yeah, so our isokinetic testing in the protocol paper, um, we have two protocols. One is in a prone position with the leg straight to get a measure of total plantar flexor peak torque. And the second one being supine with the knee at 80 degrees flexion, looking at, uh, I suppose, a more isolated measure of soleus uh, peak torque. Both of those tests were done at speeds of 60 degrees a second. um, And I suppose that's what we were doing back then. But I I suppose since then, clinically, we've actually modified, um, we've adjusted that to 30 degrees a second. But for the the study, I've kept it going at 60 degrees a second, because that's what we started out with. And and we've... um, have it have it, I suppose in our protocol paper so we're, we're committed to that. But I suppose in hindsight, I think thirty degrees a second gives us a better measure of um calf strength I suppose closer to isometric values. Um I think I think anything uh, faster than that um you know higher degrees per second is nearly too fast. And I don't particularly like the the C to calf isokinetic test. Um for the Soda I think there's a lot, you know, it does require a lot of precision to set up and make sure we're consistent when we Test the same patient again to compare values, um, especially get the knee angles right, the and even setting them up in at a neutral neutral ankle position. So that's why I think the C calf isometric test um would probably be of more value and a little bit more convenient to, to administer, uh, and less less time consuming. So I suppose even since we started that study, there's been a lot of lessons learned as well. So um, and that'll be something that'll feature in my in my thesis. Um but in terms of the, was the isokinetic strength values, um, at six degrees a second, we're looking at, you know, peak torque of 130 to 140% body weight as being a good target based on healthy or um, fully rehabbed athletes that we've worked with, um, and similar for the, for the seated uh, calf, the bent knee calf isokinetic test. And we also look at dorsiflexion as well. We, we like dors- dorsiflexion peak torque to be at six degrees a second to be around about um, 30%. Or so of, of plantar flexor peak torque 30 to 35 percent just to make sure that there's a good balance around the ankle complex um front and back um so we would look at that as well um and yeah i suppose if was to move on to the isometric um seated calf isometric um test that we have done a reliability study on um yeah because like most most you know universities clinics a lot of clinics i suppose now and and, and clubs have force plates um so it's easy to do and it's suppose easy to I suppose compare numbers if everyone does a similar protocol. So we um have a, an isometric rig, and then we also what we do is we set them up uh, put the foot in the block so they're sitting in about 10 to 15 degrees dorsiflexion um to put the soleus at its, at its optimum um, length um to produce to produce maximum force and we use a ratchet strap across the the, the lower quad or top of the knee to, to, to sort of to hold them down, tightened up quite securely um, give them a few practice trials. And then we get them to do um, three test trials, uh, five seconds, maximum effort um, and take the best out of three. And with that sort of refined protocol with the pressure straps, which is a lot more user friendly on the athlete uh, more comfortable on the knee. And then they're able to really sort of give it their, their max. And um, we're definitely seeing a lot more people hitting more than twice body weight. So, um, I would have said in the past 1.6 times body weight for maybe distance runners and maybe twice body weight for your, field sport players who and, and and sprint athletes who who where acceleration is quite important um and where there's a big demand on the solace I would have said twice body weight but I think I'd be thinking more 2.2 2.25 times body weight for those and maybe, 1.9 twice body weight for distance runners because I think they can if if you get your your, your setup right um you know they kind they of hit those hit those hit those numbers um and that's our target for for for, for athletes
0: yeah nice and how do you find i guess or troubleshooting around that setup so uh you're talking 10 degrees dorsiflexion is that when they actually contract and come up into plantar flexion like i'm assuming you don't want them coming too high because they'll obviously be in range and lose that strength is that really important to have that set up nice and tight so when they are doing the the test itself the contraction they're really only just getting their heel off the floor is that yeah. off the force plate is that we're looking for
1: we, we we want to try and minimize any sort of heel lift so we strap them down good and tight so that when they do their practice trials there should be very little little um heel lift and if they do lift or there's a or if there's any slack gets back at the system we'll, we'll tighten them again before we do their test trials so we want to try and keep them dorsiflex as much as possible because i think you know if you, if you come into neutral and, and come into a slight plant reflection, you're probably not getting a true reflection of their peak torque values. Now, I know some look for maximum dorsiflexion as well. So I think I tried a bit different degrees of, dor- of dorsiflexion, you know, up to 20 degrees, 15 and 10, and there's not much difference in peak torque or sorry, peak force. from from. Um, and we know that when the knee is bent, you know, close to 90 degrees or even on 80 degrees, we're, we're, we're getting a, I suppose, a true reflection of the soleus force capacity because we're, we're making the, the gastroc muscles, um, I suppose, insufficient. So, um, yeah, so the soleus, um, after tw- after 20 degrees dorsiflexion, it starts to lose some of its, its uh, peak force. And I suppose from a muscle mechanics point of view, it operates on the ascending limb of the force-length relationship close to the plateau region. So um, I don't mind if they're a little bit off maximal dorsiflexion. I think they can still produce peak force. And so, yeah, definitely, aim, I'd probably aim for about 15 degrees, um, just depending on, I suppose, the the type of athlete we have. Um you know, and we're obviously limited in terms of the block height we have, so um, we set them up, and um, you know, if they're above ten, we're kind of happy with that. And they have to stay within around ten resource deflection when they start to get to their their test.
0: Yeah, nice. And I guess stepping back into the clinic here, are you um, how are you using that throughout someone's rehab? So you might have a baseline marker. Is it is it beneficial for you to be looking at how they're tracking as their recovery from say the initial calf injury back to restoring full strength, or are you more doing it say um, you know? purely at the end of their rehab or or in a different manner
1: well i suppose when you're rehabbing someone um you know given my role you're looking at all potential factors that might well potentially contribute to the injury obviously we don't know what they're like pre-injury but um or may impact their 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 rehabilitation journey and return back to performance so um we want to make sure that Strength isn't the, the limiting factor or lack of strength. So if they hit those numbers, we're kind of comfortable with that. Doesn't mean we don't do strength work, but we it's probably less of a focus on it. We just maintain what they have, and that maybe that maybe more focus needs to be shifted on their on their hop capacity, um, and maybe on their their ability to handle, um, I suppose, a volume of running if it's, if it's a calf injury or, or an Achilles tendonopathy, uh, and especially where intensity starts to come back into play again. So, um, so just I suppose it gives an idea where to focus on and maybe where, um if if that box is ticked, if they've hit twice body weight or more for a seated calf isometric, um, but they're poor in their hops, so then we might focus a little more on, on developing their their hop capacity and, and and being smoother on the ground and, and improving those spring qualities.
0: Yeah, perfect. Um, all right, so we've talked a little bit around you know your testing there for your calf strength, um, both isokinetic and isometric. Uh, how each strength training so still on the strength but now training it how are you prescribing that at the sports surgery clinic and within your rehab um and what are some target markers you're looking for in their strength exercises
1: yeah so ideally um if somebody has access to a smit machine it's a nice way to load the calf in a i mean you're, you're still in a sort of a compound position because it's hurt. you've um you're 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 vertical and um there's a little bit I suppose of of precision to try and constrain contribution from the knee and the hips. So, um, but when you put a block, when you get someone to stand on a block with their, um, ball of the foot on it, it just it just allows a little bit more leverage um through the ankle and work the calves a little bit more rather than going from the ground. Um, so sit machine is ideal, or as a leg press where you can really isolate the calves a little bit more. Um, so on a sit machine, we'd like to be doing even just like a heavy slow resistance, like concentric eccentric with a little pause at the top. Um getting up to like maybe 80% body weight for sets of six to eight reps for, you know, four sets of six to eight reps. Um, and that would be like a typical, um, protocol we'd use early on in a, in a tendonopathy or even a calf strain. Um, and then we would look at isometric, um, short heavy isometrics where they're working well above their own body weight of external load on the sip machine. So for an 80 kilo person on the SIP machine to be able to um, have, you know, one and a quarter to one one and a third. And if they can do more than that, better again, of their body weight of external load on on, on the bar. So that could be 100 plus kilos for an 80, 80 kilo person. And doing short, heavy, you know, three to six seconds isometric holds repeatedly for maybe five or six reps in a set for three or four sets, which is obviously, as we know from the research, a good stimulus for um, tendon adaptations to improve tendon mechanical properties, as is an, as is any other heavy slow resistance exercise, you know, even your concentric, eccentric or your isolated, eccentric overload. I mean, yeah, once it's heavy enough and slow enough, the tendon gets the signal to, to adapt and, and improve its mechanical, mechanical properties. Um but I suppose in terms of the calf, we're trying to, you know, the target may be to increase physiological cross-section area to get the force capacity up. So maybe having the sort of concentric focus will, will help to um get those changes in pination angle. Um, if we're trying to increase fascia length, particularly for sprint athletes or explosive athletes who want to um have that muscle fascia length. Um, for excursion we'll maybe do some of those um we we'll work through range and and and, and um, maybe working towards uh eccentric isolated eccentric overload so wherever they can do isometrically be able to do 20 or 30 percent more load eccentrically um slow enough and that's a good stimulus for, for increasing fascicle length as well as connective tissue properties and as a tendon mechanical properties as well and also like we, we may be looking at um overall capacity because they might have good they might have good engine size in terms of able to hit big numbers, big peak force or peak torque values, but they may be quite fatigable. So if that's the case, um, again, we try to profile them accordingly. If they're struggling to do 30 good cat phrases, um, single leg, you know, without any cheats, um, we probably will um, add in some, maybe some calf endurance work as well to try and incre- increase their endurance capacity. And then I suppose based on our isometric seated uh, calf visor test, if we think that the soleus is... You know, below where it should be, we will um add in some bent knee or seated calf, uh, isometric. Um, you know, going as heavy as you can. Obviously, uh, if you if you don't have access to a sit machine or a seated calf isometric uh, machine, it's very very hard. I set the soleus going quite heavy um and and safely. So if you're only limited to free weights like a heavy kettlebell or even a barbell um and you don't have someone else to help you with it, um, we might just play it safe and go for maybe a moderate weight, but go for more more reps just to try and because the soleus is a a type one um fiber type muscle um so we can get good adaptations for for, by working out fatigue as well as trying to go for um high intensity and and, and, and low volume
0: lovely uh all right so moving on i guess past strength and and some targets there we'll jump to the hop testing pardon the pun And, and in your study you looked at largely the double leg uh, drop jumps from 30 centimetres, I believe, and single leg from 20 centimetres. Um, I guess from a testing and monitoring point of view, what are the main metrics you're looking at here? I guess there's so much that you can pull from that testing. What are you valuing as the most important ones to, to draw from?
1: Yeah, so double leg... Um Mightn't tell us an awful lot. I suppose we use it because the sequence in our hop tests is to do a double leg drop jump, single leg drop jump, and then a single leg horizontal rebound. So the double leg kind of is like an extended warm-up, it gets them ready for the single leg stuff. Um so we look at reactive strength index, so their jump heights divided by their contact time. Um and then we get a single leg, we're looking at, I suppose, between limb differences, and we do see that's where, especially with Achilles and updates in, in in my study where, where where they become um apparent. Um and then we look at joint contributions. So if they, you know, looking at joint power and joint work um, and we often see that it's reduced at the ankle, especially on their injured side, and they have a, more of a knee or a hip strategy to compensate for that. Um, so there, that's, I suppose they're the main variables we look at, um, and try and improve on, um, I suppose jump, uh, for a single leg drop, jump, you know, we're looking at trying to get their contact time under 0.3 of a second. And, you know, uh, if they work up a 20 centimeter step or box, try and get as close as that on the rebound um, uh, across both limbs
0: lovely and I guess um, why would you choose a single leg drop jump over say a repeat of drop jump or a repeat of hop um, say five hops or something along those lines if you are just looking at reactive strength index what what makes you decide to go the drop jump versus just you know five or six hops in a row
1: yeah, no, good question, and, and and I and I do often not within my study, but clinically, I often, very often, actually use a, a multi-hop test, like a ten-five, and it does suit athletes a lot better. And preferably, myself, I, I prefer it. There's probably a little bit more to control because you got to get the timing right of their initial hop, um, and 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 get that right um, so that you're getting a true representation, a true representation of their, um, you know, the 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 um, the average of their best five hops. Uh, so there's probably a little bit of coaching involved um, to get that right. But um, I suppose the single like leg drop jump being a bit more quick and handy and it's something that we had already done for our ACL and our groin rehab. So we had a lot of in-house data and I suppose we were looking to see, well, you know, would it expose things the same for, for like a, a a lower limb sort of calf, Achilles, or rank rated injury.
0: Yeah, and I guess on those ones you might be looking at the five-hop test uh you mentioned there sort of some things you're seeing with your single leg drop jump being you know at, at least able flight time above the 20 centimeters and a contact time of less than 0.3 what are you seeing with these five hops and you're taking the average i presume what's it what's a good measure of say a, your active strength index along those five hops
1: yeah like we would see people get easily getting and um, the rsi above you know 1.5 maybe some good at least getting above two. Better than they could do like an, on, on on a single leg drop jump because you just get into a rhythm and you, you get into that sort of bouncy pattern and you know it it, it just suits people some people better um, than doing like a one off a cyclic movement like like a single leg drop jump, um so yeah I mean I think sometimes you might I might even just look at their you know getting doing it for like thirty seconds and just see where the when, when they start to fatigue where the compensations come in do they spend more time on the ground to maintain their jump height or does their jump height start to drop. While trying to maintain a certain contact time so um i often just look yeah maybe works in some case not all the time but look work into fatigue and see um you know what the trade-off is when, when, when they're you know fatigued or, or under pressure
0: yeah and, and i guess you mentioned a little bit around there's some coaching involved in either that test and i'm sure most of the hop testings is a degree of like coaching what are some errors in some of these hop tests that You see that you need to, I guess, train out that leads to sort of a bit of decrease in the reliability of the testing, whether it's the athlete's technique or what have you.
1: Yeah, so with the hops, um, especially with the drop, I mean, there's there's a lot of coaching involved in the drop hop as well, and it's new, new and alien to a lot of people, so it takes a lot of familiarization. So I'm not saying it's 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 easier than the multi hop test, but um, you know, just trying to be consistent with how we cue them to step off the drop off the box and try not to let them tuck when they when they rebound. So try to almost pull go off the ground with a straight leg and try to be, maintain that sort of extension of the knee and the hip as best they can when they're in the air as opposed to tucking and lifting the knee where they might get an inflated um jump height. Um because if if, if especially on, depends on the plates we use. If we use our AMTI plates in the in our, in our lab where, um you know we're, we're 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 using flight time to measure jump height whereas if you use your your, your valve plates you know you're using your impulse momentum um which which will, will, will uh expose the, the cheats a bit more. Um so yeah we just encourage them to um not to tuck when they come off the ground, try to just drop off silently um and yeah and then try to land as close as possible to where they took off from so that they're not coming forward too much. And hands on hips as well for consistency so
0: hand, yeah hands on hips yeah okay perfect hands on hips your um single leg hurdle rebound hop about yeah. that's uh the terminology was correct there you mentioned that you're doing a side project looking at a study on that what is that um and why are you looking at it
1: yeah um as i said i was trying to i was a little bit curious about what's different about a horizontal rebound compared to a vertical rebound like a drop jump um so this is pretty much like a, it's a horizontal rebound. So think of like your middle phase of a triple jump. Um, We had the hurdles there initially just to guide the person. So we had the hurdles either side of the force plates. So they got a target to know where the force plates are and then to tra- rebound off it. And we had to select a distance back from that. And I suppose why is it relevant to my research? Well, we know from, um I know Craig Perdom in a lot of presentations has a nice slide where he summarises the the tensile forces and the loading rates on uh, the Achilles tendon uh, different tasks, and that you know horizontal hopping, uh, maximum effort for horizontal hopping closely replicates the loading rate demands of high speed running, um more so than maybe vertical hopping. So that was one um rationale, just I suppose triggered by but by that. Um, another other there's another modelling study done by Josh Baxter's group in the states, um who works under, um the same, uh Karen Sibyllego and they modeled out different tasks, um, looking at the loading rate and and and, and tensile forces at different hop tasks, and then obviously um uh horizontal hopping was was at the highest loading rate as well. So um so that added more, more rationale to what I was trying to do. And also the work done by um an aspatara last last year, more relevant to ACL rehab, but looking at a horizontal hop for distance compared to a vertical hop. Um and how there is a bit more demand on the ankle complex during horizontal during the propulsive phase of a horizontal hop, and the soleus muscle force contribution was the soleus had the highest muscle force contribution as well. So, um, so all that sort of fed into this, I suppose, study. Um, and one of the things I found was that the joint work and joint power in the horizontal rebound, um, hop was greatest at the ankle, uh, more so than the hip and the knee. Um, so it might, I suppose test the ankle a little bit more so than a vertical hip where it's a bit more of an even distribution of joint work and joint power between the ankle knee and the, and the hip. It's kind of like a 33% nearly across the board, across the three joints, whereas um, in, in a horizontal one, um, it's, you know, it can be as high as 45 to 50% joint work and joint power at the ankle, um, and the knee actually, ironically, and the horizontal is actually the, the lowest contribution, and um, it's more of an absorber, whereas the hip and the ankle has, has more propulsive function um, in that task.
0: Okay, and. So just to sort of get the visual, uh, visual, visual visualisation, I guess, of this test for our for our listeners, are we we're hopping forward onto the force plate and then jumping as far as we possibly can, or are we actually have to jump over a small hurdle onto the force plate and then jumping as far forward? And are we measuring our horizontal distance? And then obviously we're also measure, what are we measuring off the force plate?
1: Yeah. So you you uh, actually. Um described it correctly there so yeah we, we, again we, we have hands on hips we self-select the distance back from the force plate you don't need the hurdles but we just had them there as a target because our force plates in the lab are embedded so you mightn't see them so we, we put the hurdles there just to give them a bit of a, a guide um so yeah they they, they self-select, self-select the distance back from the force plates or the hurdles and um, hop forward on one leg and quickly rebound off the force plates going for maximal distance uh and to make a reasonable attempt to stick the landing um, and we measure their, Measure more so the rebound distance as opposed to the total hop distance. So they're they're um, from the stance phase in the force plate to where they land is a rebound distance, and then we measure horizontal reactive strength, which is the horizontal. Sorry, the rebound distance divided by their contact time, and then we looked at um, joint stiffness, vertical stiffness, and leg stiffness as well. And then obviously we looked at joint work and joint uh, power contributions from the ankle, knee, and hip respectively.
0: If I wanted to pick one of those metrics that I'll take away as like my main test in a clinical setting, what would I go with?
1: Uh, yeah, so I mean, if you have like Veld, ForcePay technology or any of the other um, companies, like, um, you know, your, your vertical hops are already programmed into it. So it's quick and handy to do those. Um, if you don't have that technology, but you've got maybe um, some means of measuring hop distance, so you could probably do the horizontal um, rebound hop and um, measure hop distance. Um, you could use some of the apps, smartphone apps to... Get a rough illustration of their joint kinematic changes during the different phases of their during the stance phase. So see what is a more um, ankle dorsiflexion, more knee flexion, or more hip flexion on the injured side compared to the uninjured side. Um, because you can still cheat that a little bit by having more of a hip strategy to make up for what the ankle can't do. Um, given that it's, that's what the injury is. So yeah.
0: Okay. But the um, I guess the force plates and those sort of the main ones people be using have this sort of the program would have already been embedded and it's giving you the information it needs. Perfect. Because you sometimes, obviously, I'm sure some of us get a bit lost with the amount of um, information it can give you and not to get too lost in that. And if you had to pick one or two of the key things to really guide what you're doing, I think that um, can be helpful. But you've answered that there. So, um, perfect. Um, let's let's move on from, I guess, some of our, that's a lot around the assessment and testing. Uh, we're back on, I guess, talking Achilles' Uh, tendinopathy here and within your study but also clinically for you when are you introducing your plyometric training so i guess referring to the stiffness quality work um within the paper
1: yeah i mean as early as i can um that doesn't mean I'm, it, 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 it's the the sole focus but if someone comes in and they got moderate symptoms not too severe they can still run and the tendon settles as they warm up and they don't flare up too much afterwards, but obviously they're still limited and trying to progress. Um, and their calf capacity and strength is reasonably okay. Like I would bring in plyometrics, and sometimes often find is that they do plyometrics in, in, initially. I like get them do like a you know ten double leg pogo hops, and they might have more of a you know plantar flexor, a plantar flexed uh, foot angle as they land, so they land more on the ball of the feet, um, and kind of softer through the ankle. Um, and that means that the landing will a lot more slack in the system and the kid is tendon that's initially lengthened before the calf muscles generate tension. And um, that can call, that can trigger a little bit of pain. So when I actually change that, get them to land more flat footed and actually dorsiflex prior to contact to generate more pre-tension to the calf complex. Um, and oftentimes when they make that little adjustment, they're less painful doing it. Um, so that gives us a good window to, you know, folks bring in the plyometrics a little bit earlier and just focus on smooth contacts and build up a bit of capacity doing that, while also working on calf strength if they need to. And even if they are strong in the calf, um, doing those heavy isometrics or heavy eccentrics, we're getting we can still be focusing on 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 getting the, I suppose the tendon stiffness cha- stiffness changes that we're after as well, um, and, and 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 tendon tissue remodeling, um, which is which is which is also important. Um, so um, yeah, so bring them in early enough, and I suppose give them, you know. Period of time to, to, to tolerate um double leg plyos before we go on to single leg plyos um you know going vertical on, on the spot and then and then going um horizontal and then maybe if they're, if the place feeds sports and um, bring in some medial lateral com, um
0: components as well okay and and in your study in the rehab program uh you know initially participants are doing you know, two times a week of kinetic training kinetic chain strength work um three times a week of calf strength for the first 12 weeks and i'm, I'm sure this uh, varies and then you sort of brought in the reactive strength which was twice a week from six weeks if they're achieving the data uh the criteria i guess question being once we get to that six week phase and, and it may be an obvious answer are you cycling your strength work one day into my reactive strength the next day and then strength reactive strength reactive or are you how you spraying then across the week and doing maybe strength and reactive on the one day and having a day off, etc.
1: Um Yeah, no, we, we by that stage, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be week six until they, um, they start doing plyometrics. I suppose it, it, they, they enter the protocol depending on their pain symptoms and their competency. So if they're really, really sore and they struggle on a single leg paraphrase, well then they're at level, level one where they might be just doing kinetic chain stuff and some isometric holes because that's all they can do. Um but if they can do, like, concentric eccentric combined calf raises on one leg, we get them onto that. If they can do hops, we get them onto that as well. Um, so some people might come in at level four, where they are doing where we are doing some, some um, plyometrics and that, you know, I suppose week six is kind of a guide, but some people can enter at that point. So that's why I suppose the, the study is kind of criteria-based as well. So whatever they can do, we try and set that as the entry point. Um but also working on other qualities. So yeah, when they are doing plyos, obviously there's a, and and at that stage they're going to be running a lot more as well. So we will kind of keep it to twice a week of, of those of rehab rehab sessions. Um and ideally, I mean, you know we give them a little bit of scope to whatever fits their their routine and and, and, and that as well. But um ideally just keep it keep it all in one block. So do their do the warm up, do the plyometric exercises first, and then do the kinetic chain work, and then do their their calf exercises then towards the end and anything else they want to do. Um, as part of, the, of a typical s program, so we're we'll trying to get them doing it in two two sessions a week. While they're you know on the, on the assumption that they're going to be playing their sport and, and, and doing a bit more running volume as well, so it's just trying to get that balance right rather than trying to do it three sessions a week or, or any any more frequency than that. Um, if for logistics and convenience they have to want to spread out a bit more and maybe do their plyometrics separately, they might do some of it as part of their warm-up before a, a running session um, or or as a standalone session. But we'd encourage them to try and pack it all into one into one block session if they can. Um, for all those qualities and, and then do a second session of the
0: week. Yeah, that certainly, certainly clarifies that and within the study as well, you know, roughly from the 12-week onwards and that obviously is pending where they're at um, symptomatically and along their criteria, but you've mentioned a maintenance program there that you have the athletes doing those heavy isometrics. You mentioned earlier four sets of, I think it was four to five repetitions for your four to five second holds. Um, you talked to a li- little bit of the benefits of this, um, but I guess to break that down a little bit more like, um, you know, why have you chosen or why has that been sort of put in there as the maintenance program? And when we are holding them, you mentioned high loads, what positions are we holding? Is it mid range? Are you looking to get a little bit higher into the calf hold? And what range are you doing your isometric holds in?
1: Yeah. Um if they're using a sit machine or a leg press, which we would encourage them to try and source or access a gym that has one um, just holding in like a mid range position and um, cause obviously if you're going really, really heavy, it's going to be hard to do that in in, in a high level plantar flexion. Um, so kind of mid range position, maybe slightly above neutral. Um, and yeah, as I said, hitting those numbers that I mentioned before, so if it's a machine, be able to do at least one and a quarter to one, one and a third times body weight of external load if it's a, if it's a leg press, um, you're know, maybe talking of twice, um, you know, twice body weight of uh, of load on, on the leg press if it's a horizontal one because you haven't got your own body weight to overcome as well. Um, or, or uh, so, yeah. So I, I suppose we get to a point where you know we've done all the front loading in the rehab program over the, the twelve weeks or whatever, and if they need to do any worth work, they, they've done that. Take take that box, and they, they we would like to think they've built up their calf capacity. So they're at a stage where they're back competing in the sport those running demands are going to be quite high um. Obvious, and we shouldn't need to do as much volume of calf work um. because that should have already been done, So, but at the same time we want to try and maintain it because tendon tissue, you know, uh, it, it takes a lot longer to, to remodel compared to other tissue in the body, other biological tissue, and there's always a risk of a reoccurrence if we slack enough too much, um. you know, if the... If the Demand on the tendon, you know, if, if the degradation of the tendon tissue exceeds the, its ability to synthesize on, on demand, um, you know, they're going be, always going to be at risk of, of a reoccurrence. So yeah, we, we do encourage them to keep in a, a maintenance program. And isometrics are can be quick and convenient and have less risk of re- visual doms that you might get from eccentric stuff, um, that might carry over to the next session. So and it can be done. Maybe you can be maybe fit in maybe anywhere in the week without taking too much out of the system for other things.
0: Beautiful. And cycling back, I guess, here to to running, um, more so within the study, you perform some running gait analysis. Um, What are the key things we're looking at here? So I guess thinking Achilles tendinopathy, both how are we looking at this through your assessment and what are you commonly seeing in these um, athletes who may present with Achilles tendinosis?
1: Yeah, so in our study, we're using Run 3D, which is use the vicon marker system um so we're able to look at their 3d running kinematics um and look at their I suppose how much dorsiflexion they have in the, in the foot strike what knee flexion they have and hip flexion uh, in sagittal plane and then we look at their how that changes during mid stance so look at you know peak knee flexion during mid stance peak ankle dorsiflexion hip flexion and then in frontal plane then we look at you know from the from the top down contralateral hip drop um knee valgus um and then as well as rare footy version excursion and yeah um and then also we look at leg stiffness so even though we don't have force place to, to calculate the traditional way we can use um jb morin's um, equation so once you know the running speed their body mass their leg length um you can work you can roughly work out ground reaction ground reaction force and you can work out leg stiffness um so yeah, and also, sorry, yeah, we, we also need to know their contact time and their flight time, which we're able to, I suppose, in a reverse way, calculate from from what room 3D gave us. So once we know those variables, we can work out leg stiffness and compare between
0: sides. Okay. And so uh, there's a fair bit to that. And I guess if I'm uh, breaking that down to, I've got someone in my clinic, going to run them on the treadmill just to have a look at some some components. Where do you think are the key things that you're seeing that maybe stand out that most is it foot mechanics or are we talking here our, our strike pattern our heel strike pattern or um, is it more something proximal
1: i, th- I think it's just it's, it's their um control during mid stance so when ground reaction force peaks at mid stance and um, you know looking at the joint kinematic changes so you might see a little bit more knee flexion on their injured side which will feed into having less leg stiffness because they're going to have less leg they're going to have more leg length changes so they're, they're not able to tolerate it as the force peaks um not able to cope with that as the ground reaction force peaks. And front of view, I'm seeing a few trends in terms of rear foot control. So I'm seeing like almost like a, it's like a bit like a an inverted U where you might see excessive um, rare foot eversion. Um, and again, it's hard to define what excessive is. Uh, or else you might see others who have a, a more of a stiff rare foot strategy. Um, and that just might be just just due to their 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 own anatomy. So there's a little bit of a um, I'm seeing both extremes there on on their injured limb or on injured runners who have um, a lot more excursion on that side and, and, and a lot more excursion velocity, so they're just able to control that that pronation well enough. Or you've others who are quite stiff, and that might be they might just be naturally naturally supination stay in supination, and that might cause some sort of asymmetrical loading somewhere on the tendon because we know that there's you know three muscles that contribute fascicles to the to the tendon, and that might mean that they're you know maybe um, loading one side of the tendon a little bit more than the other because they're not able to unlock the rear foot and shock absorb properly.
0: And do you think? And and so far, have you been able to see a change in uh, in I guess maybe that leg stiffness um, quality over the extent of your rehabilitation through, from the work they've done?
1: Yeah. So and that's that's been shown in other studies before. I mean that there's been very few I suppose looking at running kinematics uh, in. Running biomechanical features in in, in patients, but the few that have, they have looked at one has looked at leg stiffness, um, and found reduced stiffness on their on their um, injured side, um, so again, it, 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 there's not much really to, to compare with in, in the literature, but that's been 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 one study where or, or sort of and that, and that might might fit into the hop test as well, looking at stiffness in the hops, and if we can improve that, does that give them a better chance of improving the stiffness when they're running, given them the tools to do it, given that the hops replicate the I suppose in some way that the intensity of of running.
0: Beautiful and uh, to sort of I guess start to wrap things up and to summarise, uh, uh, do you want to discuss some of your key learning outcomes and where you think some of the future directions of your Achilles research and clinical practice could go?
1: Yeah, um, you know there's was there's there's a lot of things I've done in my in my study, but there's a lot of things I'd like to have done. Just didn't have the the means or the um, like, was equipment to do it. But I've always been interested in trying to measure um, Achilles tendon stiffness. Um, but that requires, you know, the use of real-time motor sound um, and synchronise with three D motion capture while doing a, a, a an isometric, um, while doing an isometric plantar flexion task, um, and there's some good studies. I suppose some good um evidence from some of the work in Germany, um, whereby there's like a sweet spot of tendon strain induced by load where, um, tendon mechanical properties can be. Um, that's what's optimised, and that's roughly between four and a half to seven percent strain, and the loads required to do that are around about ninety percent of their maximal um voluntary contraction, maximal isometric voluntary contraction, um as a guide. For some people that might be a little bit less. For some people that might require a bit more. So I suppose it's it's been able to measure someone's tendon stiffness and see how much calf, how much force from the calf, from the plantar flexors are required to hit those strain levels. Um so that's i suppose one thing i'd like to look at a bit more and maybe be able to use wearables to track tendon loading um even in real time which you know is starting to be looked at now a bit more um, even during running and that might give us an idea of someone's load capacity uh as they're trying to get back and maybe when the, when um you know when the tendon i suppose cells have um, reached a limit for, for adaptation when they start to switch off and, and, and degradation starts to override its ability to, to synthesize. Um, and then I suppose there's um, there was a study last year again by from from Karen Silberlegon's lab as um guy called I think it's Sean Hanlon who categorised three different types of um, I suppose classifications of of Achilles tend be those who are more structural based where it's, uh, it's probably more of a 3rd cut sort of load exceeding capacity. Um, Factor that that's, that's driven their, their, their pathology. Others then maybe fit more of a biopsychosocial model, and others then where it's more metabolic, and maybe the any people who have more um, metabolic and um, systematic factors that are driving driving their conditions. So um, I think being able to um, classify those type of people a little bit er- early on and be able to modify your rehab around that um, is quite important. So obviously. If it's more biopsychosocial driven, you know, you've got to break down a lot of fear factors and, 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 and um you know pain catastrophization. Um language that the baby patient might use or 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 or, or, or um you know be fearful of. Uh, if it's somewhat more metabolic, I suppose you gotta look at it a little bit more broadly. Um, you know, they gotta maybe maybe make some lifestyle changes, diet changes, um, and you might maybe have more of a moderate sort of load rehabilitation program, protocol in place. And then if it's more structural, um, you know, you're looking at, um, you know, just, uh, I suppose my, my, my uh, RCT sort of fits in that more um structural sort of category because, you know, you're dealing your with athletic population and it usually has been a mismatch between load and capacity that has probably triggered the the development of the tendonopathy. So, you know, it's a matter of dampening down, bringing the load, letting things calm down again, and then, you know, building up their, their load tolerance gradually and, you know building up calf strength and um, I suppose from our point of view because we can't measure it but blindly working on improving um tendon stiffness and then looking at their coordination trying to improve their coordination during hops and, and, and running and be able to get back to a sustainable level of of participation in the sport
0: well it'd be fair to say if you um start to move through all of those future avenues you're going to be a very busy man and uh, always have a job waiting so sounds exciting times
1: yeah it's a uh... Know, look it's been it's been a good it's been a good journey i mean and there's apart from i suppose the subject area of to doing a phd i suppose it developed other skill sets that are probably transferable to a lot of things so um yeah look it's been, been it's been coming towards the end of it now like but it's been definitely a worthwhile process um challenging and testing at times especially with a full-time job and a young family but um but look at a uh, unbalance it's been, been been worthwhile and and uh enjoyable most of the time that's perfect
0: and um Mate, Colin, we will wrap it there but yeah we're super appreciative of your time to come on to the podcast as I said at the start I think the work both yourself and, and your team over there are doing like it, it translates so well into like clinical practice and that's why people have so much interest like across the globe to one hear about it and, and two because they can sort of feel that they can do uh, have a similar approach to their their clients and it improves their practice so um, mate, we encourage you guys to just keep Keep pushing along. We thank you for all your work and for sharing it and, and putting it out there. And uh, thanks for jumping on this call. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll do something in the future and look forward to connecting again.
1: Yep. Thanks very much, Nick, for having me on. Um, it's been a pleasure.